stand, please, and turn in your hymnals to number 70. Sing hymn number 70. Holy, holy, holy.
are continuing our verse-by-verse study of the book of Matthew. We are in the early portions of Matthew 24, but don't turn there. We got as far last week as verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then, and I said that this week we would get to the then. What do you do if you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, then what instruction did Jesus give? However, here we see Jesus giving credibility to the prophet Daniel. And last week, we skimmed through the couple of sections in Daniel that make direct reference to the abomination of desolation. But there is in Daniel even more information, historic information, building up to That character, the little horn, the evil man, the one that goes by the nickname Antichrist. So we're going to go to Daniel 7 this morning. Let's start there. And I am going to read a pretty fair portion of Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. Now the real advantage to both Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 is that Daniel sees visions, but then the angel that brings him the vision interprets it for him. So this makes it really easy for us. We don't have to do any real interpreting. The Bible tells us what the interpretation is. That hasn't stopped lots of people from attempting to apply other interpretations to it, but I find it really advantageous when God himself interprets his word for us. And my thinking is, once God tells you what the interpretation is, Well, then the discussion is closed, because that's what this means. Now, I know that last week I said that as we went through Matthew 24, that I would attempt not to reteach the entire eschatology series that we did 10 years ago, but that I would concentrate on the most pertinent information that most directly helps us understand Matthew 24. My problem is... I have a really hard time deciding what the most pertinent information is because when I argue for things like context, I think the context of Matthew 24 is the Bible. And so I'm tempted to just kind of jump all over the Bible and say, well, there's this and there's this and there's this. So that's kind of what I'm doing this morning is giving you probably a little more information than is absolutely necessary but I think it'll help you place the timing of this abomination of desolation and prove yet again that it is not only future to Jesus, but still future to us. It is something that we have not seen yet, according to the details that Daniel provides for us. And on top of that, you might recall that a couple of weeks ago, we spent some time in the Old Testament just looking at how prophecy works. And I demonstrated to you in several different passages how the prophets in the Old Testament can be prophesying about things that are going to happen quite soon in the course of history. And yet, right in the middle of sentences sometimes, they would leap to things that are end-time events, things that haven't happened yet, things that you can't find in the course of history. Well, again, fortunately for us, in chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Daniel, The angel is not only going to interpret, but also say, and these are for the end of days. These are for the last days. These are for the last time. So that's really, really helpful. And yet you will notice 
that as you're reading through the historic succession of kingdoms that Daniel lays out, that he's talking about kingdoms that we know in history that have already happened, things that have already occurred. So even though they were future to Daniel, they're history to us. And as he's laying out this succession of historic kingdoms, he suddenly turns to a kingdom that you can't find in history anywhere. And so this sort of leap happens, and he starts describing things that simply haven't occurred yet, and then tells us that they are for the last days. But from Daniel's perspective, it's all one big prophecy. It's only with the advantage of being able to look back at history that we know how literally, genuinely, and perfectly the early stuff played out. And that gives us every confidence that the future stuff is going to play out equally, literally, genuinely, historically. You got all that? Okay. Chapter 7 of Daniel, starting at verse 1. A lot of reading this morning. In the first year of Belshazzar, hold it. It didn't get any further than that. Daniel was taken with the first wave of deportees out of Judah, the southern kingdom, into Babylon during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. After Nebuchadnezzar died, after he had passed, Daniel was still there. And the successive kings then, the sons of Nebuchadnezzar, include this Belshazzar. Now, the critics of the book of Daniel love to point out that in the history of the Middle East that there was no reference to a king of Babylon named Belshazzar until a piece of archaeology was found called the Nabonidus Cylinder. And on that cylinder, which you can go look up, go Google it, go look at it, we discover that at this particular moment in time, the direct son of Nebuchadnezzar wasn't in Babylon. And he left it up to his son, who was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, to rule in Babylon. And he's named on that piece of archaeology, on that cylinder, on that cylindrical piece of pottery, he's named as Belshazzar. And so for all this time, people would say, oh, the book of Daniel is not historic, it's not accurate, you can't believe it, because they want to criticize it, because it's so accurate at predicting the future before it happened. And so the critics simply couldn't have that, because that would prove that the Bible was true, and that the Bible was accurate, and that prophecy happened. I like the phrase, prophecy only works if the future is definite. If there's any possibility that the future is up for grabs, if the future is a jump ball, then you can't have prophecy because you don't know what the future is going to be. Only if the future is definite can prophecy work. And the Bible is the only religious literature in the history of mankind that constantly poses prophecy and then lets you check it. And so far, the batting average is 1,000 for the Bible. The Bible has been remarkably accurate, and so the critics said, well, then the only way that Daniel could have been written and be that accurate is if it's a forgery that was written after the fact. And one of the pieces of evidence that they used to argue against the book of Daniel was this Belshazzar. And only recently was it discovered that Daniel was correct. So go read about it. This also shows you that time has gone by. Daniel's been in Babylon a long time. 
In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first one was like a lion, and he had the wings of an eagle, and I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in my night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Last week, I made passing reference to that fourth beast, and I said that it's called the nondescript beast, because there's no description of it. We don't know what animal it was. Daniel doesn't tell us. He tells us about a lion. He tells us about the bear lifted up on one side with the three ribs in his mouth. He tells us about the leopard with wings, with four heads. But then when he gets to this last beast, he doesn't really describe it. Now, over the course of time, as we're going to see in just a moment, that's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and the kingdom that happened after that was Rome. And Rome did have a reputation for doing what was described here, just crushing everything in its path. But when we read the interpretation of it, we're going to find out that Rome doesn't satisfy everything we know about the nondescript beast. So this is the point at which we make that leap, just like in Matthew 24, where we make this leap where it's like, okay, these are things that happened in history, close to the prophecy, happened in succession in history, and then, wait, something has changed, something's different. Verse 8 says, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them, among the ten, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn, the little horn, possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Verse 9, and I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. 
And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples and nations and men of every language would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay, so we know that we end up at the kingdom of Christ. We know that we end up with the kingdom that God gives to his son, the son of man. So the ancient of days sets up a kingdom for him. But it is part of a succession of kingdoms which are actual, worldly, physical, literal kingdoms. So the first question we have to ask is, did Daniel at some point in this prophecy leap from actual, literal, earthly kingdoms to a spiritual kingdom in heaven somewhere? Or is this kingdom that belongs to the Son of Man, the kingdom of Christ, is it an earthly kingdom? I, of course, argue that it is an earthly kingdom based on the fact that all the previous ones were earthly kingdoms. And as we're going to see in the next chapter, his kingdom crushes all the other kingdoms. So, again, very physical, very earthly very terrestrial kingdom. So now we're going to interpret the vision. Good, this is helpful. Verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the vision in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who was standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. There's the summation of what it is. These are kingdoms. These are four kingdoms, but there is another kingdom coming which will be given to the saints of the Most High. Now, again, context, context, context. This is all about Daniel's city and Daniel's people. That's what we've been told repeatedly by Gabriel. When he spoke to Daniel, he said that these prophecies have to do with Daniel's city and Daniel's people. That's Jerusalem and the Israelites. So here's a good example of a place where Israelites are referred to as the saints. Remember, again, the concept of saints is just the idea of those who have been separated for God's use. It's a fairly generic term for those that have been separated for God's use. And the first people group on the planet ever separated for God's use is Israel. And at this point, as the angel is speaking to Daniel, there is no knowledge, there's no thought, there's no concept that there would be Gentiles and Jews combined together who, through faith in Christ, would become what we call the church. 
It's an unknown concept. So saints here means Israelites, the chosen of Israel. So the kingdom belongs to the saints, but the saints of the highest one, verse 18, will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. So then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. That's that nondescript beast, which was different from all the others and exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and it devoured and it crushed and it trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. Namely, that horn that had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. So I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Okay, I want to know what all that means, Daniel says. Here's the answer. Verse 23, thus he said to me, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Okay, so so far we've got these ten kingdoms that three of them are going to be subdued by force And the implication is that the other seven just give him the authority. And he ends up ruling a ten-nation confederacy. But as we know from the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, that by the time we get to the ten toes, they're made of iron and clay. We're even told it's a miry mix, and they don't blend real well. They're held together in a rather loose confederation. So we've got this world leader coming who is going to take control of ten nations, and his goal is going to be to wear out the saints, to attack Jerusalem. Now, in history, we can't find that ten-nation confederacy. It doesn't exist. No historian has been able to accurately say, oh, yeah, after Babylon, after Medo-Persia, after Greece, then, uh, yeah, definitely, there was a ten-nation confederacy, because Rome happens next. And Rome rules in the Middle East right up to the time of Jesus. When Jesus is on the planet, Israel is still under the yoke of Rome. And that's not a ten-nation confederacy. Some people have attempted to say, well, that's a reference to the ten first Caesars of Rome. Some have attempted to say, well, it's the ten last Caesars at Rome. Some have said it's ten Caesars starting right about the time of the apostles, since that was the time of the great persecution of the church. Then you start a succession from like Nero and you find ten. But the truth of the matter is the description is very specific. It is an actual kingdom that includes ten kings who were brought together into an affiliation by this one leader that rises up and joins them all together, three of which he takes by force. 
But now he's going to describe this character who we looked at last week. We looked at Paul talking about him in the book of Thessalonians, this man of sin who's going to set himself up in the temple, showing himself that he is God. He is the one who is going to establish, according to the book of Revelation, establish the worship of himself. And his false prophet is going to see that everybody worships the image of himself. So we already know him from the New Testament, but here Daniel is predicting him in the Old Testament. So he says this, verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High, and he will wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in the law. Those are God's set times, feasts. He's going to change all of that. And they will be given into his hand for time, times, half a time. Is this sounding familiar yet? Here's that three and a half again. We've seen it a couple times in the New Testament. You certainly see it in the book of Revelation. Here it is in Daniel that there's a specific period of time when he's going to rule and when he is going to specifically wear out the saints. Verse 26, but the court will be set for judgment and his dominion will be taken away. He'll be annihilated and destroyed forever. Actually, his dominion will be annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. And at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, and I kept the matter to myself. Now, because of the statue image, and we know that the head of gold was specifically Nebuchadnezzar, and that is a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted and even said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So we know who the first kingdom is. The first kingdom is obviously Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. But as you go through these animals, the next animal that we saw, the next beast, was a bear raised up on one side with three bones in his teeth that went forth to devour. History tells us that the kingdom that finally conquered Babylon by going under the wall, at the very same time, by the way, that Belshazzar, who we just read about, was busy throwing a feast, busy throwing a dinner, and he said, because his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had actually routed the temple and had taken a lot of the furniture and the gold, so in the midst of his feast, Belshazzar said, well, bring me that stuff. Bring me the gold implements from the temple, and let's use those for our party. But those things had been dedicated to the worship of God. Those were holy objects. They had been sanctified for God's exclusive use. So they can't be used by some foreign king for his party. So he's drinking out of the golden goblets and stuff. And that is when the hand writing on a wall shows up. A hand, a disembodied hand, shows up. And with all of the flames of all the torches on all the whitewashed walls, he starts writing on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel you farson. And then it's interpreted by Daniel as you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. So you're being judged right at this moment. But that word euphorsin, many, many, tekel euphorsin, is the root word for Persian. And at that very moment, the Persians were busy damming up 
the river that flowed under the wall that brought a water supply into Babylon. Since they couldn't get over the wall and they couldn't go through the wall, and since Babylon seemed impregnable, they went under the wall. And by damming up the water, they went through the riverbed and they showed up in Babylon, and that night Babylon fell. Exactly the way that that writing on the wall said. So that night, the Medo-Persians took over. Now, that name, Medo-Persian, is because that kingdom was a combination of the Medes and the Persians, and they each had their own ruler. There was Darius the Mede, Darius, some people pronounce his name. So there's Darius the Median king, and then there is Cyrus, who is the Persian king. But over time, the Persians became more powerful than the Medes, and that's why the bear is lifted up on one side, because one side of the bear rose up against the other side. Three decisive battles established the Medo-Persian Empire, and that is why he has three bones in his mouth. And then the Medo-Persian Empire was conquered by the Greeks, and their first great king, Alexander the Great. He swept through the Middle East and through known Europe so quickly from the West and swept through the Middle East so quickly that he is described as a leopard with wings. But he has three heads. But he has four heads. And that is because Alexander died very young and, as Daniel predicted, the power that he had amassed to himself did not go to his posterity. He did have a young son who was later murdered, and his son did not rule in his stead. Instead, his kingdom was divided up among his four generals, and so the four heads. Do you get all that? Do you see how accurate Daniel is? But in the next chapter, we already know that he's in Babylon at the time. We already know that the lion is Babylon. We already know that the golden head is Babylon. He has said so, but in chapter 8, he's going to tell us. He's going to name the Medo-Persians by name. And then he's going to name the Greeks by name. And then you would think he would say, and then the Romans. But he doesn't. Instead, it turns into this nondescript beast thing again. Here we go, chapter 8. Now in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, so two years have passed, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision, and it came about that while I was looking, that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside Uli Canal. Then I lifted my gaze, and I looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. Okay, I'll tell you right in advance, he's going to interpret it for us. That's the Medo-Persians, and their two kings are the two horns, signs of power, and the one that came up last, Cyrus the Persian, actually conquered and became more powerful. I lifted my gaze and I looked and behold a ram that had two horns was standing in front of the canal. And now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one was coming up last. I saw the ram budding, jutting out westward and northward and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power 
but he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat, King James says a he-goat, was coming from the west. Greece is in the west from the Middle East, from Jerusalem and from Babylon. And he was coming over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. That's that whole leopard with wings thing. He moved so quickly that it was like he didn't even touch the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. One horn, one power. That's Alexander the Great. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and he rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram, and he shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground, and he trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, that large horn was broken. It's exactly right historically. Alexander the Great died in his early 30s. According to legend, he was sitting outside the gates of Babylon weeping because there were no more worlds to conquer. So Alexander the Great is cut off. He's the notable horn on the he-goat that is cut off in his youth. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, says verse 8, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in his place came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. That's exactly what happened. His kingdom, north, south, east, west, was divided up among his four generals. Now, as we get into chapter 9, which we won't have to read today because we referenced it the last couple of weeks, but as we get into chapter 9, we're going to be introduced to the king of the north, the king of the south. And the king of the north is the succession of rulers in the area that is the Middle East, where Jerusalem is and its surrounding nations. That was given to a, a general named Seleucus Nicator, and so in history that becomes known as the Seleucid portion of Alexander the Great's kingdom. South of that is Egypt, and his general Ptolemy was given Egypt and northern Africa. And so he becomes the king of the south. And in chapter 9, you see all these wars between the king of the north, the king of the south, and you see a whole succession of kings between the king of the north, king of the south, and the last of the kings of the north, the worst one, is the one that sets up the abomination of desolation. Somewhere along the king of the north, king of the south, king of the north, king of the south, you get to a king of the north who would, in history, have been Antiochus Epiphanes, but in reality, he is a leader that hasn't shown up yet, as once again, Daniel's prophecy makes that leap in time to the last days. So let's go back and read about this ram with two horns and then the notable he goat with the broken off horn, and then his kingdom is divided to four smaller horns to his four generals. Verse 9, and out of one of them, out of one of those four horns, I just told you, it's the Seleucid Empire. It's the area of Seleucus Nicator. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land, which is Jerusalem. 
and it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall down to the earth and it trampled on them. Find this in history. After Alexander died and his four generals came up, find a king who is a successor of Seleucus Nicator who not only waged war on earth, but waged a spiritual war on such a level that he trampled on the stars of heaven. Find anything that fits that description. You can't. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't fit. Because Daniel is now describing the final world ruler, the final king, but wait, I'm going to really convince you, because it's during his rule that Jesus returns. So you know it hasn't happened in time yet. Make sense? Have I lost anybody yet? Okay, I know I'm moving fast through kind of thick and heavy stuff. If I've lost you, let me know. Verse 9. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, And it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of the sanctuary was thrown down. This is the same thing we saw previously with the ten toes. It's the same thing we saw with the ten horns. That he's going to do something that is going to change the seasons, the times, the laws of God. So he's going to establish the temple. The temple worship is going to begin. And then at some point he is going to cut that off and establish his own worship in the temple by setting up the abomination of desolation. The image of himself that the false prophet tells everybody they have to worship. They have to take the mark of the beast. It even magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, And another holy one said, holy ones, by the way, these are angels, angelic creatures. And another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifices apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one looking like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out and he said, Gabriel, give this man understanding of the vision. That appears to be a Christophany. One like the son of man, one like a man. And he's standing above the river and he's commanding the angels. So he says, Gabriel, help him to understand it. Verse 17, so he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. And he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Okay, well, that's really helpful. Whatever this vision means, it's for the end times. Now, while he was talking to me, 
I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and he touched me, and he made me stand upright. And he said to me, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. This is really helpful, again, because what this shows us is that the succession of kings and the succession of kingdoms took a leap right after Greece all the way to the end and just seems to have kind of skipped over Rome, even though we know that Rome was the next kingdom in historic succession. As far as the prophecy is concerned, it's about Babylon, it's about Medo-Persia, it's about Greece, and then it's about this last kingdom, this kingdom that is designed and designated for the end. Verse 20, now he's going to tell us who the ram and the he-goat are. The ram which you saw with the two horns represent the kings of Media and Persia. There couldn't be any clearer than that. Now we know the ram with two horns is Medo-Persia. And the he-goat or the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Well, that's Alexander. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, though not in his power. That's a really, really interesting phrase. Oh, should we get into this? Yeah, let's. What the heck? We're here. This language of power is really important because Alexander the Great, the only way to describe the power that Alexander had as a young man in his 20s, leading armies and nations of armies, conquering the known world by his early to mid-30s. Historians have marveled at it and attempted to explain it in human terms, and there simply is no human explanation for anybody amassing that kind of power and authority to themselves. And so the angel here is saying that Alexander was actually driven by a power, by an authority that was beyond himself. I would argue that it was a demonic power, an ability that human beings just don't have. And his four generals didn't rule with his power. That's why it took four of them to be able to handle the kingdom he had amassed to himself. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms that will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressions have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. Here it comes again. So there's another king coming, kind of like Alexander the Great. There's yet another king coming on the course of history, who is going to have this kind of demonic power, this kind of very dark authority. Which is why, when we read in the book of Revelation, or even what we've read here from Daniel, which is why he manages to conquer, again, the known world. When you read things like he makes all, strong and great, rich and poor, free, bond, everybody, take his mark, say, well, who has that authority? Who has that kind of power? The reason that it's hard for us to imagine it is that in our lifetimes, we have only dealt with people. As much as you may or may not like the politicians of the day, 
as much as you may agree or disagree with Barack Obama, as much as you may like or dislike George W. Bush. They accomplished the things they accomplished through the mechanism of human government. But we have not yet seen what it's like when there is somebody on the planet who God allows to exercise demonic power, demonic ability on the level of Alexander the Great. But it's coming. And so, verse 24, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree. And he will prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. He's going to go after Israel. He's going to attack Jerusalem. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. And he will oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. And the vision of the evening and the morning, which has been told, is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. And then I got up again, and I carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. And that takes us to chapter 9, King of the North, King of the South, and the King of the North, King of the South stuff reaches the culmination of yet again this little horn, this evil one who's going to come onto the planet and establish a kingdom. And it's while that kingdom is on the earth that Jesus returns and crushes his kingdom and all other earthly kingdoms and sets up a kingdom that will never be defeated. Got all that? Okay, that's the Daniel prophecy in a nutshell. All right, that was all introduction. It's nearly 12 o'clock. We're now in the book of Matthew. I hope you brought a lunch. I came prepared. Now, by the way, if you're, if you're thinking to yourself, wow, that Daniel stuff, it's kind of thick and heavy, and, you know, it's got symbols in it, and there's a lot of interpretation, and... Boy, I just don't know about the book of Daniel. I just, don't, I just don't know. Okay, so Jesus, in chapter 24, verse 15, validates and verifies the prophet Daniel. If Jesus says the prophecy of Daniel is accurate, you got to go with that. You don't get a different opinion. I don't care what you think of the book of Daniel. If Jesus said it's good, well, then it's good. you got to go with it. Chapter 24, verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those that are in Judea flee to the mountains. Why? Well, because of everything we just read. When you see the abomination of desolation set up in the temple of God, then you know that he is about to exercise his wrath. He is about to destroy and conquer. He is about to attack Israel and Jerusalem because he has turned his attention to God's holy place and God's holy people. Because he is demonically inspired, his goal is to attack 
the people of God, and particularly the place, the one place on the whole of planet Earth that we read repeatedly is the place where God chose to place his name. That is one of the Old Testament descriptors for Jerusalem, the place where God placed his name. So since he wants to show himself that he is equal with God, he wants to attack God, he wants to attack the worship of God, he changes seasons, he changes the times, he changes the sacrifices, and he sets up an idol of himself in the temple. And Jesus says, when you see that, run. Now he's going to talk about the urgency with which they have to run. But let's talk about the word you. Because it's a specific you. There are interpretations of this passage that say that the the Antichrist, I'm going to use that nickname for him, that his goal is to attack the church because they see that he attacks the saints or that he attacks the holy ones. And so they say, well, he attacks the church. But both Daniel's prophecy and Jesus talking to Jews in Jerusalem use the very specific language of it being about Israel. For instance, he says, you that are in Judea flee to the mountains. How does that apply to Smyrna, Tennessee? Not well. Not well. There's simply no way to say, well, what he meant was, those of you that are in Charlotte, run. No, he said, you that are in Judea, Flee. Now, where are you going to flee to? Somebody look up. I know we just got out of Daniel. Somebody go to Daniel 11 for a moment. Because in Daniel 11.41, there's a clue about where to flee to. Because Daniel tells us that there is a particular place just east of Jerusalem, three places, in fact, that the Antichrist passes over and doesn't attack. So since Jesus made reference to Daniel... And then he says, now flee into the wilderness. All they have to do is look at Daniel and they know where to go to. Who's got it? Who's got Daniel 11.41? You got it? Read it for us. He shall enter also into the glorious land. Wait, what is the glorious land? Jerusalem. Okay, he's going to enter into the glorious land. Okay, then. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand. Even Edom and Moab chief of the children of Ammon. Okay, now these three places still exist over there in the Middle East. That territory still exists. Well, there is this large city built into the rock over there. What am I thinking of? The Petra. Which is uninhabited right now, and which only has one narrow pathway in and out, so it's defensible. I'm not saying that's necessarily where they got to go, but it's there. It exists right in the area of Edom. Is it, is it mountainous? It says it's very mountainous. Yeah. And so, uh, again, go online. Go look at Petra. And I'm not saying categorically that they're going to Petra. I'm just saying it's interesting that at this moment in time, that exists in the very place where God said flee to. In any case, you that are in Judea... Flee into the mountains, and then, of course, Daniel 11.41 tells us that there are three places right there by Jerusalem that the Antichrist passes over. It doesn't go attack. Okay, here's your safe place. Run there. Now let him who is on the housetop not go down to get things that are in the house. Don't get anything out of the house. 
we don't relate to this because we don't spend a lot of time on our housetops. But in the Middle East, the houses there all had flat roofs. And oftentimes, there were like porticos and areas up there for living, for dining. For instance, in the book of Acts, when we read about Peter being told to go to the place of Simon the Tanner, we read that Peter was on the housetop. Peter was on the housetop when God brought down the various different food and said, kill and eat. And Peter said, I've never eaten any unclean thing. And God said, if I've called it clean, don't you call it unclean. That all happened on the housetop. This was very standard in the Middle East that there were flat-roofed houses which is why in the law of Moses, there is a particular rule about having to build a barrier around the roof of your house so that if somebody's on your roof, they don't fall off. That rule doesn't make much sense to us because we don't have a lot of people on our roofs anymore. And so in the Middle East, this is very specific again, this locates it, this tells you this is about Judea, and this is about the area where people spend time on their housetops. And if you happen to be on the housetop, this is such a critical moment, such a critical juncture, that you are to not go grab things. Don't go down and say, oh, it's that fleeing time. I need this, and I'll take these, and I'll get a couple bags, and here, you carry that. Get out. Just get out now. Just get out of Judea. Get out immediately. Close on your back. Go. Get out. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get things out that are in his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. Again, we don't relate to this because we have closets full of food. But as we've been working Wednesday nights through the book of Amos, we just talked about this, the importance of a person's cloak. If you took their cloak as a as a surety on a loan, then you had to give them their cloak back at night. Because in the Middle East, in a desert area like that, you used your cloak to keep the sun off you. A hooded cloak would keep the sun off you by day, but it gets really cold at night. And the cloak was the way that you stayed warm at night, remembering that these were oftentimes people with very little actual shelter. And so God even made rules within the law about if you took a person's cloak, you had to give it back by that night to protect them. And so the cloak is an important part of your daily living. And yet, Jesus said, if you don't have your cloak with you, don't go get one. Just run. That's the urgency with which you got to run. Let him who is in a field not turn back to go get his cloak. Woe to those that are with child and those who nurse babies in those days. Because, yeah, that's a difficult thing. When you've got an infant... Anybody who has raised a child, we know how tough it is to take a kid anywhere. These days, it's like packing up a small circus and moving. Well, we need the stroller. We need the carrier. We need the diaper bag. Did you get the formula? We got to go back. If you got a baby, and you're nursing a baby, and you're taking care of a baby, and you got to run, you got to flee, that's difficult. And yet, Jesus said, just go. Just go. No excuses. Like a house on fire, just get out. Then again, look at how specific verse 20 is. But pray that your flight is not in the winter. Okay, that makes sense. You know, it's going to be really cold, so pray that we don't have to go when it's going to be really cold, especially at night and everything else. But then pray that it's not on the Sabbath. How does that apply to the Gentile church? It doesn't. We're not Sabbath keepers. We're not concerned... Pray that your flight's not on a Saturday. Anybody do anything here yesterday? 
It was Saturday yesterday. Anybody do anything? Do any work? Go anywhere? Went to temple. You went to temple. <laughs> I see. If, if you did anything yesterday, if you started a car yesterday, then you built a fire. The spark in your car was enough for you to break the Sabbath. You bunch of Sabbath breakers, you. Why are we not concerned about it? Because we're not under the old covenant, and therefore the sign of that covenant keeping Sabbath is not imposed on us, on our conscience, on our behavior. We're not under that law. But Jesus is speaking to people who are under that law. He's talking to Jews. He's talking to Israelites. He's talking to people who are required to keep the Sabbath. So he's talking to people in Judea who live on housetops, who might be out in a field, who might have children, but all of them have the requirement of keeping Sabbath. So pray that it's not during the winter and pray that it's not on the Sabbath. Why? Because of this. For then there will be, remember last week I wrote it up on the board, Thalipsis Megas. Thalipsis, the word for tribulation, with the adjective Megas, big, gigantic. Translated great in most of our translations, great tribulation. Notice he did not say, for then will be the great tribulation. Talked about this last week. He did not give it a proper name, even though we, over the last 2,000 years, have given it the proper terminology, the great tribulation. Jesus never did that. What he said is there's going to be a tribulation coming, a time of trouble, struggle, trial coming, unlike anything that has ever happened before. It's going to be enormous. For then will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. So he's talking about a time of trouble unlike anything the world has ever seen or ever will. That hasn't happened. Because every time something happens in the world that we think, boy, it can't get worse than that. You got to be careful when you say, boy, it couldn't get worse. Because it'll get worse on you. But there has not yet been a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. There are folks who point to 70 AD and say that the destruction there was so bad and it was horrendous that that was the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. But then as men have continued on and technology has grown, we have managed to expand our warfare and our killing far, far beyond what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Sure, it was awful what happened, but 70 AD was nothing compared to Hitler. Actually, the truth of the matter is the bloodshed and the killing that happened in 70 AD is nothing compared to abortion in America. It just is. So as far as a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, that hasn't happened yet. Now, Daniel makes mention of this. It's a Daniel kind of morning. Daniel makes mention of this time, this time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. Someone turn to Daniel 12, verse 1. Somebody else turn to Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Because Jeremiah also speaks of this time of trouble, and he helps us define it. Has anybody got Daniel 12, verse 1 yet? Tom's got it. You want to read it for us? At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, 
who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Okay, at so that time, your people shall be delivered. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Described it the same way Jesus did. Jesus just made the reference to Daniel, and then he makes direct reference to Daniel's description of a time of trouble such as never has been or ever would be again. But notice the specific language that the angel uses in describing it to Daniel. He says it has to do with your people. Read it again, Tom. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till all that time. And a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Which nation is he talking about? Israel. The nation of Israel. This is all about Israel. Who has got Jeremiah 30, verse 7? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Okay, interesting. There is this time of trouble, such as never was, ever will be again. And Jeremiah specifically calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. King James, Jacob's trouble. What translation was that? NASB says Jacob's distress. Who's Jacob? Israel. Israel. This is all about Israel. How much evidence do we need? So Daniel says it's about Daniel's people. Jeremiah calls it this time of distress that is the time of, of Jacob's trouble. And Daniel says that, that they're going to be delivered through it. They're going to be delivered out of it, ultimately. Everybody who's written in the book will be delivered through it. You had your hand up, George. I don't have any reason to disagree with your interpretation, but I think we should read to the end of the verse that Tom was reading. Because it says... But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now, is that not the Lamb's Book of Life? We don't know, because it's not called the Lamb's Book of Life. All we know is it says everyone who's written in the book. When you get to the book of Revelation, at the great judgment, the white throne judgment, it says that everyone comes before God, and the books are open, and everybody is judged out of the things written in the books. So there's also this notion of a record kept in heaven of every man's deeds and that they will be tried according to that. So it's just an image that describes the fact that God has made his choices, he's made his decisions, and his judgments are based on things that are already written. So since it's not called the Lamb's Book of Life, we got to be careful not to. But yes, I would agree with you conceptually that what he's saying is people who are saved through that time of trouble, Daniel's people that are saved, are the ones that God wrote down, just like the Lamb's Book of Life, that he wrote them down in advance because these are the people he's going to save. The next verse will tell yes, you. Yes, I was say. Go ahead, read it. The second verse says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall be awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So it can't be the book of life. Possibly. <laughs> yeah, at that time, there's also the general resurrection. By the way, that's also very good evidence, since this is also the time of the general resurrection and the judgment of both the living and the dead, then that also hasn't happened yet, has it? So we would have to say that all of these events have yet to occur. Well, I'm talking about that kind of the same with what Paul said in Thessalonians about the time of the, well, in Romans, the time of the Gentile, and then 
he turns his attention back yeah. to his role. And then in Thessalonians, he calms him down and says, hey, y'all haven't missed anything. And that is an exact quote. Y'all haven't missed anything. Because <laughs> Paul was from the southern kingdom. And so he used the term y'all. But she's exactly right. She's just tying together all these pieces. And she's saying, you know, the New Testament says the exact same thing, teaches the same thing. And this is why I keep arguing time and time again that you can't extricate the New Testament from the Old. The Old is the foundation and the basis for these New Testament prophecies. And if you just read what's in the New Testament, then it's easier to try to insert the church into this stuff. But when you compare it to what the prophets have already said, and you have Jesus making direct reference to those prophecies, then it's impossible to say it's the church. It's all about Israel. Make sense? And as Jennifer said, Romans 11, Paul writes that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. God is dealing with the church right now. But there is going to be a time when he returns his interest back to Israel and does exactly what all the prophets of the Old Testament says, which is establish that kingdom. And that is why, boy, I'm going to sound like a broken record now, but it's important. And that is why in the beginning of the book of Acts, after Jesus' resurrection, after 40 days of talking to them about the kingdom, their question is, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Because their concept of the physical kingdom, just like all the prophets promised over and over, that concept was still clear in their head after the resurrection and after 40 days of Jesus talking specifically about the kingdom, they still believe the kingdom belongs to Israel. And he does not correct them. And he doesn't say, guys, it's all spiritual now, y'all. He doesn't say that to them. Instead, they ask him a time question. You're going to do it now? And he says, not yet. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has placed in his own hand. It's not for you to know. But he doesn't say, no, come on, guys. You get it? Let's look at one more thing. Turn to Zechariah 14. Find the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, second to the last book of the Old Testament. Shouldn't be too hard to find. You got your Malachi, and just before it, you'll find your Zechariah. Go to Zechariah 14. It's the last chapter of the prophet Zechariah. Here is Zechariah's description of what that time of trouble is going to be like. And we're pretty much done after this. Pretty much. Sort of, kind of. In the ballpark. Right around the bend. We're never getting out of here. (laughs) Chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. This is about the restoration of Israel, ultimately. Verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, And half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. For the Lord will go forth and fight those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. 
And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. By the way, that means this is all earthly. This is all earth stuff. This is not spiritual stuff. This is not some spiritual war in the heavenlies. This is Israel's war when all the nations turn against Israel. And at a time when it looks like they're going to be utterly destroyed, Jesus returns. As we continue through the book of Matthew, chapter 24, you're going to see where Jesus specifically says that unless those days were cut short, no flesh would survive. And it's going to be cut short by him coming back to do this. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will touch on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. By the way, that's also described in the book of Revelation. It's also described by the book of Jude, where it says that Jesus comes back with the ten thousands of his saints. So this is also prefigured, told about in Zechariah. The Lord my God will come and all his holy ones, all his saints with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light for the luminaries will dwindle. In other words, the lights in the heavens are going to go out as we continue through Matthew 24. We're going to read that exact thing, that the sign of the return of the Son of Man is going to be that the lights of the heavens are going to go out. And then the sign of the Son of Man will be in the heavens and it'll be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. Everybody's going to see it. Nobody's going to miss it. This is when the people that are left on the planet, all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they all run for the rocks and the caves and the dens, and they say to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So this is all predicted in Zechariah. The Lord, my God, will come and all his holy ones with him, and it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries, the stars in the heavens will all dwindle out, for it will be a unique day. Unlike anything before or after it, a unique day which is known to the Lord. It's neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half toward the western sea. And it will be in summer as well as in winter, that this water will continue flowing. And then what will be the result? Verse 9, and the Lord will be the king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. You get that? You get the figure? You get the picture? All I'm showing you by overwhelming you with all this information is that the Bible only says one thing. It only tells one story. Whether it's the ancient prophets, whether it's Jesus on the planet, whether it's the revelation of things to come, they all say the same thing. And what they say is, there's a kingdom coming. There is a physical kingdom coming to planet earth at some point over which Jesus, David's greater son, is going to rule. The whole earth. The whole earth. But prior to that happening, 
there's going to be a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, and that it's going to be centered on, it's going to be about God refining Israel. We just read this on a Wednesday night, that it's going to be about God purifying and refining Israel so that they return to him, so that they look on him whom they have pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child. This is all about God returning his interest to Israel and culminating all that judgment that the Old Testament predicted for Israel. But the purpose of it is not the destruction of Israel. The purpose of it is the restoration of Israel and the establishment of the kingdom. And that's what the prophets say, and that's what Jesus says, and that's what Revelation says. And so that's what we have to say. And we can't say it's a spiritual thing. And we can't say all those kingdom promises are now being fulfilled in the church, which is some kind of spiritual kingdom. Because that's not what it says. It says Jesus' feet touch the Mount of Olives, and he comes back to the earth. And he rules over the nations of the earth. Ultimately, you get to Revelation 22, you read about the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven to the earth. This is all about earthly, physical stuff that God is going to accomplish in the history of mankind. And the fact that it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. Jesus is coming back. We've been believing that for 2,000 years. The church has believed for 2,000 years that Jesus is coming back. When he left the planet, the angels that stood there with his disciples said, why are you looking up into the sky? This same Jesus will return in like manner as you just saw him leave in the clouds of heaven. We know that he's coming back. He hasn't been back for 2,000 years. We still believe it. Okay, there are a whole lot of promises in the Old Testament that have to do with Israel, national Israel, God's faithfulness to Israel. It hasn't happened in 2,000 years, sometimes 2,500 years, sometimes 2,700 years hasn't happened yet. But do we believe it's going to? Yes. Why? Because God is the God of time, and he has all the time in the world. And a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. And while 2,000 years feels like a long time to us, that's nothing to the eternal one who still has every intention of doing everything he ever said he was going to do, which includes saving Micah and includes restoring Israel, which includes getting his church as a bride and giving them to his son, so that in chapter 19 of Revelation, there is the marriage supper of the Lamb. But the same time that the marriage supper of the Lamb is happening in heaven, there is all kind of trial and tribulation and trouble here on earth. And all of that still has to happen, or... The Bible's not true, and we can all go home and shut the doors and sell the building, and we're done. Or it's true. So there we are. There's a time of trouble coming such as never was or ever would be again. That will take us to verse 22, and that's where we'll start, because that's the verse that says, and unless those days had been cut short, just like we read, that Jesus is going to return. Feet touched the Mount of Olives. Unless those days were cut short, no flesh would be saved. No flesh would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Next week we'll start right there, but I can ask you in advance, who's the elect in that verse? Israel. Israel. It has to be Israel. We'll start right there. Okay? Did you enjoy your morning? Did you learn anything? Are you glad you were here? Are you glad you were here? Okay. I got a knowing nod from Wolfgang, so I feel good. <laughs> All right, say goodbye to the internet people. Bye. Bye.
you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.